It is Wednesday, October the 19th, 2022. Welcome into episode 57 of Tone the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. It's a production of John Boy Media. It's David Cohn, James Smythe, and myself, Justin Shackle. This and every episode throughout the postseason is presented by Rapsodo. Uh, the Yankees, they beat the Guardians in five games to advance to the ALCS and face the Astros yet again, third time in the last six years that those two teams are facing one another in the championship series. The Padres, the Phillies, they're already underway in the NLCS. We're a little tardy with the championship series preview because of that uh, astute scheduling and uh, weather involved in the American League Division Series with the Yankees and Guardians. But we're here now. You have two teams who are really fun to watch right now in the NLCS. You have the Yankees, the Astros meeting again, like I said, for the third time in six years. No time really to think if you are the New York Yankees, guys. And David, what do you think? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It could work to their favor. Uh, We've seen it in the past. I mean, Houston couldn't be uh, in a better situation. Their pitching's lined up. They swept. Yankees had to go five games. Drink a little champagne, get on the plane, fly to Houston. So yeah, they're they're behind the eight ball a little bit, but the, the pressure kind of when when it goes that far, it, it it shifts to Houston because you get your number one pitcher. The Yankees have their number four pitcher. If, if the Yankees come out and, and steal a game here, and you get Severino sitting in game two, yeah, uh, you know all of a sudden Houston's got to protect home field advantage. The Yankees could have a, have an opportunity to go in there and kind of reverse reverse the the advantage, so to speak, and then you got Garrett Cole postseason hero for the Yankees now, uh, you know, out of nowhere. And then uh, obviously Nestor, nasty Nestor, the legend of Nestor ready to go in in your home games. You know, all of a sudden you you get a chance to reverse course here or reverse the advantage that Houston has going down there and maybe stealing the first game or stealing one of those first two games. Nestor coming up big in game five as the Yankees won it over Cleveland. We'll quickly discuss the division series, get our thoughts there in the national league as well. But Right out of the gate, the Yankees are able to outlast, outpitch, outplay Cleveland in game five of the division series. Guys, overall, your thoughts on the Yankees advancing in five games. Mr. Smythe, please lead us, lead us out. <laughs> the Yankees staff really pitched well. And you know, Cleveland is a more beatable lineup than some of the other ones in the postseason, but the starters got it done. They provided length. They were just a tick under six innings per start, which is probably all you could ask for if you were uh, Aaron Boone and the Yankees going into the series, a 2.79 ERA from them. And the much maligned bullpen, yes, there was the game three fiasco in the ninth inning, but overall a 2.70 ERA and big out after big out late. And what else can you say about Wandy Peralta pitching in f- all five games and fittingly closing it out on Tuesday? I agree. Right on, right on point as usual, James. Um, the, the bullpen and Wandy Peralta and the interchangeable parts, any one of those guys can close, which is a dream for a modern analytics-driven you know, game management type style. And, you know, there's no set roles. You don't have your sixth-inning guy, your seventh-inning guy, your eighth-inning guy, and your ninth-inning guy. Loisega is a multi-inning reliever a la, like he was last year is the perfect fit for this, for this structure of, of this – bullpen and then yeah you can close with Wandy and close with Holmes I like the idea of getting Ron Marinaccio back in the mix potentially uh, we'll see if he's ready or not he seemed to say uh, last night the all of his comments seem to suggest that he's ready to go so 
that would be a nice little added mix there in the middle relief uh, to help with a, either a multiple winning guy with Loisega. But yes, the one question going in was the bullpen and the bullpen came through with the exception is that one game, as James mentioned, and obviously the starters, Garrett Cole uh, is, is lived up to his billing. I mean, it was a little bit unfair to say that, you know, Hey, you know, it, 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 he's not really a big game pitcher or everything that was going around out there just was not fair. He's his postseason numbers are spectacular, but he did need that signature moment and he got it in this series. He really did both games and back against the wall, that game in Cleveland. Wow. That, that had to feel good to him. When you, when you think about it, you, you need those moments in pinstripes, even though he's had it other, elsewhere in Houston in, in his postseason career, but he needed that for the Yankees. And now the Yankee nation really is solidly in his corner. A two eight one ERA for Cole in his postseason career and three, two, one as a Yankee, the Boston game last season at Fenway, the one game wild card that knocked him out. That was very scarring for a lot of Yankee fans. I imagine and could very much uh, color the opinion going into this season that it would take a lot for him to live it down. Well, he stepped up in two big starts in the division series. They don't do division series MVP, but if they did, it would have obviously been Garrett Cole. It's perfectly said, James, on Garrett Cole and his overall excellence in the postseason, really, when you take a look at the, the entire body of work throughout his career. But yeah, Peralta, Loisica especially, Holmes, they're all throwing the ball extremely well to the bullpen at the exact right time. It's going to be interesting to see what the roster looks like for the ALCS, but if you can add the dimension of Ron Marinaccio and he's the pitcher that we saw during the regular season, Yankee bullpen looks even more dangerous for this series against Houston. But it goes back to the starting pitching. Uh, Cole doing it well. I admit I was not too high on Nestor Cortez starting on three days rest. Recent history around the sport suggested it could backfire. The numbers didn't support the move of a guy going on short rest like that in the postseason. But Cortez, he proved he is different. And he continuously said something along the lines that he's playing with house money. It's a mindset. And I don't think what he says to the media are these, are these throwaway lines. He was asked uh, by Joel Sherman last night, on wanting the ball in the big moment. And he said, I got nothing to lose. I've been in the gutter before. I've been down. For me, this is just the cherry on top. And Joel Sherman does a fantastic job at the New York Post. He made a comparison with Cortez to El Duque, Orlando Hernandez. And David, that's a, a former teammate of yours. Do you, do you see that correlation there? I see the gravitas and then the attitude and big games, you know, that's sort of the intangible that you can't measure or quantify a lot of times is, you know, the emotional IQ, I guess is another way to put it. He's got it. He's got that it factor. El Duque had that it factor. You know, El Duque was a great pitcher with a great pedigree, but he seemed, seemed to, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, take it up a notch in, in postseason. So the only, the only way you can explain that is, there's, there's, there's just uh, a gumption, you know, some, a lot, a lot of ways to describe it. Uh, a lot of rude ways to describe it, but really what it comes down to is, uh, is looking at those sort of situations as an opportunity as opposed to pressure. And that's the way it kind of seems like Nestor looked at it. Like, this is a great opportunity for me to, to have a huge moment as opposed to, Oh no, what if I screw up the fear of failure overcoming me and, you know, for some athletes, the fear of failure drives them. For other ones, it's it's sort of the hey, no, this is an opportunity. This isn't pressure. And it's sports psychology, uh, 101, how you look at it, 
how you approach it early in the game. Can you sleep? Can you put your head on your pillow the night before the big game? Can, do you sleep or do you toss and turn all night? And there's lots of different, lots of different things that come into play mentally. And, and it just seems like Nestor Cortez is unfazed by anything that comes his way. One more topic on what the Yankees are able to do in the division series. Then we'll focus on them a little bit more against the Astros later in the episode. But if I had to ask you each really quick, who was the biggest question mark in the bullpen for you? Who, who would be the name that you would give heading into the postseason? Who was it? The guys that were injured, really, there was a couple of them. I mean, I think Wandy was more managing his workload, but he had right. a little bit of a back issue, so you didn't really know. Clay mm-hmm. Holmes was the, was the big question mark, obviously, with his shoulder. Mm-hmm. And if he was hurting, you know, what we saw with Clay Holmes is he lost the strike zone. He started missing wild. He threw a couple back to the backstop. It's like, uh-oh, maybe he's, something's wrong here. And, and the fact that he he's back to throwing strikes again, getting on top of that sinker was, was a huge sign for – for me, and even though even though there was still controversy in the middle of the series about whether he could go back to back, Yankees lost a game with him sitting in the bullpen. So th- th- there's still a little bit of a question surrounding him, but I think he he kind of answered it the way he threw the ball, especially in Game Five. It was Holmes, and considering the height of the first half of the season, his huge struggles in the middle portion. But if you go back to when he first came off the injured list in Anaheim at the end of August. Now we have 17 games, including the postseason. He has a 2.50 ERA, a 172 opponent batting average, and a ground ball rate over 60%. So even if he's not the Superman top three reliever in the game that he was, this is a very effective pitcher, even if you just look at it since then. So as long as he answers the health question, and David, we, this is something you've brought up before, but you get the release point straightened out, which could be connected to the back issue. If he shows that he's healthy, then he's someone that they're going to be able to rely on in this series. And even if it if it's not for back-to-back games, maybe it's not until game six and seven or something like that, he's someone that they can count on in huge spots while picking your spots with Luisaga and Trevino and Peralta. Well, that was the exact answer I was looking for, fellas. And we're, we're in lockstep there with Clay Holmes. And I asked Aaron Boone after the game on Monday night, what did he see from Clay Holmes this series? What did he show you? And his first answer, first line, is that he's healthy. So maybe that goes in line with the release point there. So if Clay Holmes is pitching like this, again, the Yankees could be peaking in the bullpen at the exact right time in October. More Toe on the Slab is coming up. And yes, we are a pitching podcast, but we are going to let you in on a craze that has benefited hitters. We're talking about win reality. That's the VR baseball training application available on the MetaQuest 2 that gives players access to unlimited game speed reps no matter where they may be. You can even use your own bat. The win reality pitcher library consists of 600 plus pitchers all the way from 8U to Pro. From the release to the spin, the speed, hitters get a chance to study every pitch then hit it in the real game. Players who train with win reality report 43% more confidence at the plate. It gives players of all levels a variety of workouts that are focused on pitch recognition, timing, and decision-making. And it's used by a lot of major league teams, including a guy by the name of Paul Goldschmidt. Yeah, you may have heard of him. Could win the MVP this year in the National League. It's also used by hundreds of colleges across the nation. Hitters love it. 
Coaches are raving about it, and parents have loved what it has done for the players' enjoyment of baseball. Players who train with Win Reality acquire skills seven times faster than traditional training methods. Win Reality allows players to train anywhere, anytime against game speed pitches that their coaches and teammates can't replicate at practice. Imagine, especially growing up and living and training in the Northeast, trying to find a pitcher that can throw you the type of pitches that you need to develop your game. You don't need that buddy anymore. You can bring them along for the ride if you have that buddy, but Win Reality takes care of that. You can train in here, improve their game out there. Head to winreality.com backslash slab to sign up today. That's winreality.com backslash S-L-A-B and sign up today. We'll revisit the Yankees as they match up with the Astros. Let's quickly turbo our way through the division series in the National League because we didn't have a chance to touch on this with the, the Braves getting upset against the Phillies, the Padres upsetting the Dodgers. Two premier teams in the National League, they both fall. The defending champs in the Braves, they're looking flat in a lot of ways against the Phillies. The Dodgers, we talked about it here. They were the biggest story entering the postseason after winning 111 games. What happened to the Dodgers and the Braves? Well, it, it seems to me, and I think James can probably back this up with the numbers, but it seems to me that you had some teams that were kind of built to win, the scary teams, you know, the, the even if it, in the mold of, the Mets and their top two starters, DeGrom and, and, and Scherzer, um, the teams with the stars were kind of underrated, you know, whether it was San Diego with Soto and, and Machado and the, and the big trade to get Soto in there, or whether it was the Phillies that were really built. You know, everybody said, well, their defense, you know, yeah, they have stars, but all of a sudden, you know, Wheeler and Nola show up and that's the formula that the, the scary team in the postseason that, that sort of, uh, theory came true, you know, that the teams that are built to win, it's not like everybody says it's a five and six seed on the national league side, you know, big upsets and this and that, what they're superstars on both of those teams. The Bryce Harper showed up after being injured, had an MVP year going, broke his hand, uh, you know, in a hit batter um, came back probably too soon, but now looks like Bryce Harper or the MVP Bryce Harper. So yes, it's superstars showed up in a short series. Anything can happen. Uh, the Dodgers, everything we said about them came true. Uh, the, the the pitching, the starting pitching, uh, their bullpen, they had kind of, you know, a similar situation to the Yankees. So you, you equate Kimbrell to Chapman, maybe maybe not in terms of off the field stuff, whether they show up for workouts or not, but effective, you know, are they closers anymore? They're kind of declining the decline phase of their career. So, yeah, I mean, everything we thought about the Dodgers kind of came true. Do they have enough pitching? Uh, who's their starters? Can Kershaw reverse the curse? I mean, it goes on and on. So uh, I don't, to me, it's, it's a nice matchup. The Padres and the Phillies have huge stars on their team. It's, it's good for the game. I think, and in terms of, you know, front and center national spotlight, great players. I think it'll be a really fun NLCS and the, the, the atmospheres that we've seen in the postseason at Petco and at citizens bank park in San Diego and Philly have been bananas. And you, you have two, fan bases that haven't had a winner in a long time. And like you said, Coney, superstar driven teams that kind of make them better than their overall season record would indicate. These teams are both dissimilar to what they were in April and May. And obviously the Phillies had the managerial change, but you also have 
you didn't have a full season of Bryce Harper. So you won fewer than 90 games. The Padres have a different looking lineup than they did in the beginning of the season. Juan Soto is a big part of that. And going back to the Dodgers and Braves, Atlanta, their pitching was a little out of sorts. Max Fried was uh, ill. They really just got lit up in their losses, allowing seven runs in a game, eight runs in a game, nine runs in a game. You can't hit your way out of that. As for the Dodgers, well, San Diego pitched the hell out of those last three games that they, after the Dodgers won the opener, the Padres allowed seven runs to the Dodgers in their three games to, uh, to, to, to streak their way into the NLCS. So tip your cap to, to the Padres and Phillies. The Padres were 22 games below the Dodgers in the regular season and LA went 14 and five head to head. The Phillies were 14 games behind the Braves in the NL East, but in a short series, anything can happen. And when we were discussing the postseason preview a week or two ago, David, there was a line that you said that's just been resonating with me and just is the ability for certain teams. And now we can kind of classify superstar driven teams here having the ability to just hit the reset button, even after they perhaps underachieved in the regular season. So when you have a team full of superstars and they're able to hit that reset button, be on the lookout. And and that's what we've seen with the Padres, their lineup, their pitching staff is as you know good as anyone's right now who's left in the field. And same thing with the Phillies, able to hit that reset button from a slow start they were one of the best teams in the majors from, from June on. And now, you know, they, they had the uh, potential to have everyone recognize that fact. Once the postseason began, everyone had a clean slate. So we'll, we'll touch on that Phillies Padres NLCS. The game's already been played in that series in a few moments. But one more thing before we move away from the Dodgers and the Braves going home early in the eyes of their fans here after Big regular seasons. The Dodgers, obviously, with a historic regular season. A lot of talk has been made about the new format, what we've learned already. I think it's a little too early to kind of deduce anything from from just a two-week sample size here. But when you have this new postseason format, from a player's perspective, David, who's gone through the 162-game marathon, do you think – a time's going to come where we as fans of the game are going to have to appreciate the regular season and the postseason separately. It's a valid point. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's teams that are built around overall depth that can rack up wins during the regular season that just overcome any adversity that comes their way that, that gets on a roll like the Dodgers and can win a ton of games. And then all of a sudden in, a five game series, you, you can, uh, you can get matched up with uh, a couple of hot pitchers and get knocked out. So yeah, it is two different, two different scenarios. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, you know, you still got to find a way to close the deal. If you're the Dodgers, you know, they have nobody to blame, but themselves, you can talk about the format. You can say it's unfair. You know, we can talk to talk about this till we're blue in the face, but the bottom line is that, um, there are teams and there is a sort of a strategy and to how, how to play a short series. Now, big difference between a five game set and a seven game set. As we now move to the seven game series, overall depth does play more of a role. You know, the year fourth and fifth starters are going to come into play now, depending on, especially on the Yankee side, the last five games are all consecutive. The last two games, uh, you know, there's no off day in between, you know, game six and seven. So, Domingo Herman's going to have to pitch. Jamison Tyone's going to have to pitch. 
So maybe that was a, you know, the seven game series, you could say maybe the Dodgers could have overcome something there again, their overall depth of the roster could have come through, but nonetheless, you know, a team like the Phillies really benefits from, from a five game set. And when you have Wheeler and, and, uh, and no, and Noah, Nola come through the way they did, yeah, but they get hot. They could beat anybody. They were they're, they're that good. They're, they're that dominant on the starting side. So we saw it last night with Wheeler. A one hitter in seven innings. He was just utterly dominant. And the other side too. I mean, Darvish was great too. He only gave up two solo shots. He pitched well as you know in, on his side. So, you know, the, the Padres outpitched the Mets. The Phillies pitched their way here. They outpitched the Braves. Um, the Phillies are dangerous because you know they're top two starters, but they're going to need more than that. They're going to need Syndergaard now. They're going to need uh, Ranger Suarez to come through. So. The, the seven-game series is a whole different dynamic than the five-game set. We've seen it for 30 years in the division series that a five-game series can bounce either way. One day of your ace getting bombed, one day of an unheralded starting pitcher on the other team shutting you down, and one bad game from the bullpen. Boom, 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 and you're done. You just have to – if you don't like it, play better. But at the same time, we do have to – I don't want to say recalibrate, but we have to – appreciate the teams that were great in the regular season and the teams that can sprint their way to a title. But in American sports, everything is just driven to ring counting. You see it in, in the NBA, you see it in the NFL. It's just, who's better? Well, just count up the rings. Who won, who won more championships? And it's not that simple. But in baseball, we've seen how often the number one seed, the number one overall record in the game, they don't always win. And that's what makes it fun. You know, we could do the uh, English Premier League style and not even have a postseason, just hand uh, the championship to the Dodgers at the end of the year. But where's the fun in that? In college hoops, is it w the best way to determine a champion? Who's the best team? Is a 68-team single elimination tournament the best way to go about that? Nah, probably not, but it freaking rules. So we all love March Madness. In that same fashion, the baseball postseason, you can't beat it. Yeah, I don't know if we're ever going to reach a point in, in our society here in America where you can feel both the, the disappointment for your team not getting it done in the postseason and have the appreciation for whatever they did accomplish that was good in their respective regular season. It's such a tough balance to have, but we're, we're definitely moving I guess, toward that direction in baseball, we're opening it up more because you're going to have to be forced. Otherwise, it's going to be a very miserable offseason for you if your team didn't win the championship. Uh, looking at you, Dodger fans, looking at you, Braves fans, for sure. In some ways, it's a competitive balance issue, too. I mean, I remember hearing, the you know, Dave Dombrowski's a, got a reputation for building a winner, you know, making trades. You know, it's not about – he doesn't build organizations. He doesn't build through the farm system. He builds winners. And in the offseason, some of the moves he made, you started to think, well, you know, they can't play defense, but if they get in a short series, they could be pretty dangerous. And that's kind of what happened, right? So, yeah, if you're a middle – if you're the Cleveland Indian, the Cleveland Guardians, rather, or if you're a middle market team or even a small market team and you feel challenged, but, yeah, you know what? If we get in a short series, we, we have a chance. We can, we can still win this thing. So, in some ways, uh, you know, if you're arguing the flip side of it, it, it – it helps competitive balance this sort of a postseason format, or at least theoretically it can, you know, you can argue both sides of that, but some middle market teams got to feel like, Hey, if we just get in the tournament, you know, we can beat anybody. It's a good way to, this is a good case for 
Go for it. Try. Don't just throw your hands up and say, oh, the Dodgers spend more money than us. It's a, it's a, it's a case to go all in. The Phillies, they spent in free agency. They go out and even years ago getting Bryce Harper and say, well, oh, they're not really, are they ready to contend? Well, you're making a long-term commitment. In San Diego, they made their moves at the deadline knowing that they could not move higher than fourth in the NL bracket, and yet they still went all in. In San Diego, they're a high payroll team, but they play in the fifth smallest market in the major leagues. They are not a team that's going to be mewling about market size and we can't run a high payroll. They went for it. Yep, two teams that went for it being rewarded right now. They're the last two standing in the in the championship series. Let's let's focus in on the NLCS and our I guess our preview, so to speak, kind of bleeds into the aftermath of game one. But the Phillies took game one, touched on it briefly moments ago. Zach Wheeler, excellent. Two hits, seven scoreless innings. Uh, he only threw 83 pitches in his game against San Diego. Were either of you squirming when the Phillies bullpen took over after Wheeler threw that masterpiece and only threw 83 pitches? I actually was not. Uh, I've come full circle. You know, I'm that old school pitcher that wanted to finish what he started. I would have been upset getting taken out of that game, but I also understand now better the cumulative effect of those extra pitches at the end of a game that those extra that, you know, if he's going to close that game out, he's going to get to 110, <clears throat> excuse me, to 120 pitches. He's got to pitch again in the series. So getting him out right then. And there's an old, there's something I used to talk to Mel Stoudemire about. He had a chance to get two positives. He had seven shutout innings. Now you, you bring in your relievers, whether it's, um, you know, Dominguez who was throwing hundred miles an hour and then Alvarez at the end. Now all those guys feel good about their games. One inning each on the reliever side. You got Wheeler out of there uh, with his pitch count down, or relatively speaking, and now he's ready to go his next time. Maybe you save some bullets, so to speak, for his next start. So, you know, the rather than think about the old school argument of why could you, how'd you, could, how could you take him out? Why didn't you just let him keep going? You risk it. Actually, it, it, there's something to be said for the other side of it. And, you know, whether you want to call it load management or Wheeler's ready to go in his next start or the relievers feel good about their game. Everybody feels good about where they are right now. There's something to be said about that as well. And speaking from experience, I know those last 20 or 30 pitches of any outing can really be taxing on you. And I, now with the benefit of hindsight, looking back, you know, my, my next start in a postseason after having been pushed to the 120, 115 pitch mark in the first start, I wasn't as effective. I did feel it in my next start. And I really extended myself in my first start. The only way I... I, there's several examples I can give you, but in 1992, pitching for the Blue Jays, I pitched game two in the LCS, got through eight innings, went out for the ninth inning, got knocked out. Tom Hinkie came in, but I really extended myself. And then in my next start, I pitched on short rest and I had nothing. I really, and I got knocked out with five, five runs in the 1992 LCS against Oakland. So you, you can look it up, but my first start was one of the best starts I've ever had in my career in postseason. My next start's one of the worst ones I've ever had because of the workload and the extension that I made, the emotional investment that I made in that game one start. And then the second start coupled with the short rest, you know, it really does matter. And, and the, just winning game one isn't the goal for the Phillies. It's, it's uh, having Wheeler being effective in his next start and maybe even using him a third time. If this goes seven games, you know, who knows? I mean, I don't know if we're going to see a Jack Morris type, you know, you know, three unbelievable starts in a seven game set, but, 
you know, who knows? Maybe he does come back and give you, give you some work in game seven if you need it. Maybe he does pitch three times because you got him out in seven innings and 80, 80-something pitches. You preserve that opportunity to be able to use him three times. In October, it's all high-stress pitches, and the cumulative effect, like you said, David, has an impact there. Wheeler spent time on the injured list down the stretch. He missed about a month, and they built him back up just in time for to be at 100% going into that first wild card start against the Cardinals. He's been, he was great there. He's been great. He has a 140 ERA in the postseason this year, does uh, Zach Wheeler. And you're able to get him out of the game. They know, I don't mean to be just a simple appeal to authority and just, you know, accept whatever the Phillies might say, but they, they know these guys better than we do. They know what's going on with their bodies. Wheeler knows what's going on with his body. So for him to leave after 83 pitches, you're six outs away. You're not 12 outs away. The Phillies bullpen is pretty top heavy. They, they didn't have to rely on their third, fourth, fifth, sixth best relievers. They go right to Dominguez and Alvarado, who've been phenomenal for the most part. Uh, Alvarado had a couple of hiccups, but Dominguez has been almost unhittable uh, this October. And those are guys that if you go seven innings to start and you hand the ball to those two guys for the eighth and ninth, you've done your job. Thank you. Alvarado, not Alvarez. My, my bad. Yeah. Alvarado threw a few uh, extra pitches there at the end too, with the botched uh, double play in the middle of the infield as well. But that that's fascinating. Uh, David talking about just excess pitches, even when you feel satisfied internally about your performance and, it, it, I could see why it may be hard, even after seven flawless innings from Zach Wheeler, potentially with pitchers this day and age, they see the 83 pitch number in their head, but there's, there's discipline that's involved, especially at this point. And those excess pitches maybe left on the table could serve them well near the back end of this series. That's, that's a very interesting look. Um, and yeah, you the mentioned flip side, some... real, real quick, the flip side of that is, is that you're going to take him out the minute a runner gets on base. Mm-hmm. So, so starting out Dominguez with a clean inning allowed him to sort of be dominant. So that there's, there's the flip side of that argument too. I just want to throw that in on the back end of the argument, but you know, you're not going to push him, you know, in the old school, you would have let uh, Jack Morris, even if he gets a runner on in the eighth or nine innings or a couple of runners on, you're going to let him mow right through. That's Jack Morris. You know, we're not going to just have one base runner and then go right to the bullpen. And now all of a sudden, the bullpen's got to pitch with, you know, from the stretch with somebody on base. So that's the other flip side of it to, to let your reliever start with a clean inning. All right. If the Phillies are able to come away and beat the Padres in this championship series, who else needs to step up on this pitching staff behind Wheeler and Nola? Well, yeah, it's obvious, you know, an old New Yorker, Noah Syndergaard is going to be in that mix somewhere. So maybe as the fourth guy, probably. And Ranger Suarez has been pretty good for them as well as a starter. So, yeah, that, that's the thing about the seven-game series. We touched on it a little bit earlier. Uh, you know, even, you know, the Padres, uh, feel, you know, even though they feel like, wow, we got beat at home last night, Darvish still pitched well. The overall depth of your rotation is really going to play a big role here. So, yes, I mean – and some relievers too. Some middle relievers are going to have to come through at some point for you. Uh, there's going to be some games, and usually in a seven-game series, there may even be a blowout one way or another on both sides. Uh, generally speaking, that's not not out of the ordinary. So, the, yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting go go around. It's not just your top two starters. Uh, it, it's going to be your third and fourth starters, and you can talk about any team 
the overall depth of your rotation is going to be tested in, in, in this seven-game format. What is the percentage of innings that you can get in, a, in your entire series? What percentage of the innings is going to be taken by Wheeler, Nola, and however many relievers you want that you want to put in that inner circle of trust? Dominguez, Alvarado, David Robertson's back. Is he in that group? Zach Eflin, is he in that group? The higher percentage of innings you can isolate just with those guys, the better you're going to be. But it's not going to be 100% of that. You can do that for two games, three games, maybe not for a seven-game series. So you're going to need, like Coney said, Ranger Suarez, Noah Syndergaard, and even uh, Bilotti and Brogdon and some of the, the guys in the middle tier of the bullpen. A seven-game series, like you've said, David, is, is where you get the true test of pitching depth. It's probably the best. best. Yeah, the best job that Rob Thompson went, excuse me, Shaq, was – was getting Eflin in the mix too, closing some games and kind of rearranging that bullpen. And that's always been the problem in Philly. Joe Girardi had a big problem there and trying to figure out roles down there and getting consistency. So yeah, that's probably the best work that Rob Thompson did was figuring out the bullpen, the order and getting everybody in line. Let me ask you guys this, even after game one, what we saw the Phillies coming away with a win, which teams, James, I like the way you phrase it here, which teams inner circle of pitching is going to amass the higher percentage of innings in this series. Because you have pretty formidable three with the Padres starting staff. They, you know, they held the line last night. Nick Martinez looking solid. Luis Garcia, Josh Hader seems to have his mojo back. Who's in our circle do you trust more? If we're stealing a line from Meet the Parents. I may, maybe San Diego because you can – you can have, I mean, Musgrove is lurking and some of those guys at the back end are absolutely filthy. I think the, the game leverage is going to be a, a big part of this too. Cone, Coney, you mentioned uh, that in some of these series, you get a blowout one way or the other and you kind of get to, both teams get to kind of reset their staffs. There's one game like that in, in the earlier middle part of this series that can kind of let you retool and tinker your staff to, to, for the rest of the series jumping back just real quick on Yankees guardians neither team really had a chance to do that because it was all close games in a seven game series are you, are you going to have all tight games I don't know if it's gonna if it's gonna play out that way really two evenly matched teams if you think about it the Phillies and Padres star driven teams good rotations at the top they're gonna match up they're gonna bump heads their bullpens are kind of similar too I mean they're, they're much better at the end of the year than they were in the middle of the year. Things seem to be, you know, pretty well lined up. Pitchers are thrown pretty well, top to bottom. They have reasonable depths in, the, in their bullpen. Uh, they have the, they have the, the prerequisite uh, two or three relievers that throw 100 miles an hour. <laughs> so, you know, it's a, you got to have a bullpen, at least one or two guys that throw 100 nowadays, and, and the rest of them throw 95-plus. So they, they, they have it. It really is an interesting matchup, even though we, we tend to think of, oh, no, it's the five and six seed on the National League side. It's the five and six seed with superstars and, and uh, they're all playing well and they do have really good starters. So it is really an evenly matched series. It's hard to handicap in that regard and give either one the edge. They, they both have their strengths. I think the one issue is going to be the third and four starters, you know, it, it, whether it's a you know, it's a Syndergaard or, or whoever, whatever the matchup is in the third and four starters, and maybe even the fifth starter or a bullpen game or something like that could come into play. Uh, you know, that, that may be what the series comes down to. And as, as 
James says that goes, you know, that's the flip side of the argument on how many, what percentage of innings you can get from, from your best pitching. All right, before we move on to the ALCS, David, it's a former pitcher, having that pitcher's mindset here. If you're on the mound, which hitter in this series, and you could only pick one, should pitchers be the most careful facing? Is it Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, or Juan Soto? Uh, for me, it would be um, – I would pick Manny Machado. You know, I'm not sure – even though we saw Juan Soto's has been much better as of late, I'm not sure he's the Juan Soto yet that we've seen at his peak level as of yet. You know, maybe part of that is just Wheeler making him making him look kind of, you know, silly at times last night. And he made everybody look silly at times. Uh, Soto swinging the bat a lot better, but Machado's the guy that he's the MVP guy in that lineup. Soto's kind of working walks a lot. Uh, the one mistake you don't want to make is to Machado because he can lose it. Soto's not really a home run hitter. He's not really driving the ball as much as he has in his peak right now. So I don't worry about him losing one out of the ballpark, the big home run in postseason that you can live or die with that really makes or breaks these, these, these games individually is who homers. So Matt Machado's that guy uh, with, with, with the Phillies, there's a, there's, there's a couple three guys that can go deep. So there's not one guy you can really pitch around. I think, even though you could say Bryce Harper, right. You know, or, or you know, but then, then you see Schwarber hit one 400 and, uh, 498 feet, whatever it was, 488 feet last night. So, and, and, and certainly Hoskins as well is in that category. But to me, it's Machado's that one power guy in the middle of that lineup that I'm not going to hang a slider to Manny Machado in this series. Tell the slab fans, if you are also an NBA fan, the wait is over. And you know that basketball is back. So tip off the season with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. New customers can make any $5 NBA Moneyline bet and get $200 in free bets if your team wins. So check it out. In addition to the usual bets, everyone can boost their winnings up to 100% with DraftKings stepped-up same-game parlays. Go to the DraftKings Sportsbook app, opt-in, and place a stepped-up same-game parlay today. With payouts bigger than ever, DraftKings Sportsbook is where you want to go to bet on the NBA. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code SLAB. Make any $5 bet this week and get $200 in free bets if your team wins. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook with the promo code SLAB. S-L-A-B. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. All right, let's focus in on the Yankees and the Astros meeting in the American League Championship Series for the third time in six years. This is something I just asked you, David, before we started recording, and it's been something that was on my mind throughout the course of this season, just based on the paths these two teams were on, everything that you know I've read and watched growing up, absorbing, I guess, Yankee history, so to speak, this current day Yankees-Astros rivalry reminds me of everything that I've learned about the Yankees and the Royals in the late 70s and early 80s. And I asked you if you saw any similarities there with the Astros playing the role of the Yankees from the late 70s and this current day Yankees team playing the role of the Royals, who so many times just couldn't get over that hump until 1980 when they beat the Yankees in the championship series, won the pennant there in 1980. Is this the current day Yankees 1980s Royals team. Do they have a chance here against an Astros squad who has really shown 
no flaws. Sands maybe Justin Verlander's start in game one, a little hiccup there against the Mariners. But is this a, a case where there's potential for the Yankees to finally get over the hump against Houston? It's, it's an interesting comparison. You know, the comp is certainly right in my wheelhouse growing up, you know, as a teenager in Kansas city, that four out of five years, the Royals and Yankees met and they were incredible series, short series, by the way. Um, they were five game sets on, on, on the American league side way back then. So yeah, we never got a full seven game set to really battle it out, but nonetheless, yeah, there was a, a little bit of an inferiority complex if you're a Royals fan back then. And, and then 1980 was a seminal moment in your life. Yeah, I still remember George Brett's home run off of Goose Gossage and almost looked like the ball was up and in and George just kind of bailed and wailed and got to that pitch somehow. And to this day, Goose Gossage still cries about, I don't, I can't believe how George Brett hit that pitch, you know, in the 1980 series when the Royals finally broke through and beat the Yankees that year. But it was, it was a magical era. I mean, it brought us so many magical moments. Thurman Munson's big home run off of Doug Bird in, in, in over Death Valley, just a bomb of a, of a home run. Uh, the Chris Shambliss home run and the Howard Cosell walking all over Keith Jackson home run call is just legendary that I still reference to this day. There's so many games. There's so many moments in that five-year set there and the four out of five years that you know, I still reference on, you know, and almost not daily, but certainly on a regular basis, it, it, it was uh, something that really was, had a profound impact on me and my baseball fandom and life and how I look at the game. So, yeah, I, I guess you could say that. I mean, it still was kind of David and Goliath. It still was Kansas city, the small market against the big, bad Yankees. And that's not the case here. And if anything, well, Houston's kind of a big market too, really, I guess. And, but nobody's like the Yankees in terms of a market size or history and tradition. So it's hard to pin the Yankees at the underdog, but I said it last night, if I'm the Yankees, I am kind of playing that underdog. Hey, we, you know, we got our four starter going against your number one guy. Yeah. You're supposed to win this. We get, we get down there and we steal a game. It's like, we got them, you know? So I'm playing that underdog uh, role. If I'm the Yankees or at least in that clubhouse, I'm like, Hey, we, we got them pressures on them now. They're, they're lined up. They're waiting for us. They're supposed to win these first two games. They're supposed to win at home. You know, that that's the big deal here. And the history in this series between the, the Astros and the Yankees has been home field advantage. Big deal. Hard to win in Houston. Remember back to 2017 for obvious reasons. Now that we know with the, the you know, the, the history of the trash can and the sign stealing that, the Astros were a different team uh, in Yankee Stadium they, than they were at home. But nonetheless, even recent history has been really hard place for the Yankees to win in Houston. So that's why I put the pressure back on the Astros in the underdog role. You steal one of those first two games at home. This is a different year. This is our year. This is the year we finally break through. The Astros picked up uh, three really hard-fought wins in the division series against the Mariners, but they did it three games in a row. So they sweep the Mariners there. And they overcame a really spotty start to the postseason with Justin Verlander, guys. He came on, allowed six runs on 10 hits in four innings in that game one start against Seattle. That was the one where Jordan Alvarez ended it with the walk-off homer off Robbie Ray. Uh, what did you see from Verlander in his start against Seattle? And why should we be optimistic that he can quickly flip this? Other than being Justin Verlander, uh, it could could quickly make the proper adjustments and come out and be the Verlander that everyone expects him to be. 
Verlander and Cole are similar. You know, when you're talking about high fastball, high velocity pitchers, they're always going to be susceptible to giving up more fly balls. And then it comes down to your home run to fly ball rate. Sometimes the balls just leave the ballpark. Sometimes it's a little bit on the random side, uh, which can rear its head at any point in time, even in a short series. And sometimes it's just by design that high velocity, high fastball style with a powerful team like the Yankees can result in some big home runs. Now the key is, is can you get men on base when those home runs come? You know, you, you know, the solo shots, the old catfish hunter style of pitching where solo shots won't beat me, especially if you have a good offense to support you. That's the key to the series. Verlander, it's, it's about keeping the ball in the ballpark, and that's what the Yankees do. So it's a classic battle of, you know what, this could look ugly at times. There could be a lot of strikeouts. There could be a lot of funny swings. But all of a sudden, all you need is that one big swing from Stanton or Judge or maybe the, the, the legend of Harrison Bader continues to grow, you know, in the postseason. So – that's really what it comes down to. Verlander's going to throw some high fastballs. If he doesn't quite get them up, if they stay belt high, Stanton might put, put the lumber on it. You might find a barrel of the, of the bats. The judge certainly uh, has had that kind of year. So to me, that, that's what really what it comes down to. That's the vulnerability of, of Verlander and his style of pitching. It can be utterly dominant the vast majority of times, but it can also come back to bite him in the, in the form of a three-run home run at, at the perfect time if you're on the Yankee side. Home runs are going to decide this series. David, you've talked all year about home run differential. Well, the Yankees, they hit the most home runs in the major leagues, leading the American League. The Astros hit the second most home runs in the American League. The Astros allowed the fewest home runs in the American League. The Yankees allowed the second fewest home runs in the American League. If you look at the division series, the Yankees scored 16 of their 20 runs on the home run ball. And everyone, same old Yankees, live and die by the homer. Well, the Astros, they swept the Mariners. Ten of their 13 runs were on home runs. Their comeback against the Mariners, you're not dinking and dunking 13 singles like Cleveland in order to come back against that, Cle- against that Seattle bullpen in game one. It was Alex Bregman, two-run bomb, Jordan Alvarez, three-run bomb. That's how they got back in the game and back in the series. The Yankees were the most home-run-reliant offense in baseball, well, the Astros were the fifth most home run reliant team as far as scoring a large percentage of your runs on homers. Great pitching, great hitting. The long ball is going to decide this series. Yeah, which team shows the most power against power pitching is probably going to prevail here. Um, speaking of power bats, if you are the Yankees pitching staff here, you saw what happened in the division series between Houston and Seattle. How does the Yankees pitching staff approach Jordan Alvarez? Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, he's uh, not just a slugger. He's a really good hitter as well. Hits for high average. He's he's a run producer and with a lot of power. So, yes, I'm wondering, is there going to be a a spot here for, you know, Lucas Litke? Maybe we didn't see him in the first round. He's got a great high spin curveball maybe there might be a spot in there for him. I mean, you can't always pitch around, you know, the best hitter in an opposing lineup, especially if there's men on base. So I'm curious as to who the matchups are, maybe even Marinaccio's changeup because he has sort of reverse splits. Maybe he's in, in, in early in the game, in the middle innings. If your starter gets knocked out and you're in one of those games where you need to, to get a big out against Alvarez with men on base, I'm curious as to who the matchup's going to be. 
you know, other than the obvious, you know, the big three that the Yankees have, if it's not time for Clay Holmes or Jonathan Loisega or, or Wandy Peralta, obviously, and who's going to be that fourth guy that can come in in that big situation. So I'm looking at that, who the matchup can be. Obviously, if you can pitch around him, you pitch around him. But nonetheless, somebody's going to have to get him out. <laughs> Alvarez is, is kind of the, you know, the, uh, the elephant in the room. Uh, how, do, you know, how do we deal with that guy? There was a great article on MLB.com by Mike Petriello. I, it was called Do's and Don'ts for Pitching to Alvarez in the ALCS. So it really is a bit of an instructional manual, and it shows how he does so much damage and also how teams have solved him in, in small doses. The Braves shut him down in the World Series last year. The Yankees shut him down in the 2019 ALCS. One thing that stuck out to me as a little shorthand to, to when you're watching these games with the Yankees dealing with Jordan Alvarez, throw high with righties, throw low with lefties. Fastballs up, spinny stuff away. Now, that could be Garrett Cole trying to pump high fastballs past him. That could be someone like Lucas Lickie dropping that curve or Ron Marinaccio's fading changeup against him in what is going to be probably big spots time and again because you're going to have guys like Altuve and Pena setting the table, Bregman providing protection behind him. It's going to be centered around Alvarez, but there is there is a way to get him out. Even the best hitters make outs. 60% of the time. So just follow your, find the best blueprint and stick with it and hope the chips fall in the right place. How does the Astros pitching staff approach Aaron judge? I think they're very confident. Same thing, you know, similar to the flip side of what James just described. Uh, it's Cleveland provided a pretty good blueprint. It's not just all slow stuff and, sliders and your best breaking ball packages down and away. We saw that at the end of the season when Aaron judge was making the home run chase, there was a lot of soft stuff down and away trying to get him to chase and Aaron judge kind of taking a lot of those pitches and waiting for a hanger. Cleveland showed you, Hey, in and out up and down the old, it's been around you know, the, the, the pitching theory has been around for over a hundred years. It's hard end soft away. And you can't forget about the hard end part. And then, Certainly uh, the Astros and their staff and Verlander at the top, they, they have the hard end part. You're going to see some hard fastballs in and up, and then you're going to see the breaking balls down and away and the combination, the one, two punch served Cleveland very well. And it was very unpredictable. I think that caught Aaron judge a little bit off guard. And I think he's going to, he'll make the adjustment throughout the course of the season. We saw Aaron judge start turning on those fastballs in, especially in the first half of the season. That was the big difference in Aaron judge from years past as he started turning on those inside fastballs and chasing the pitchers out of there. And that's when he started to get sort of all that breaking stuff away. And that's when he could take all those pitches and wait for the hangers and annihilate hanging off speed stuff in the middle of the zone. That's what he really feasted on this year. So I look for Aaron judge, you know, what he's going to need to do is turn on one of those fastballs in again, like he did in the middle of the year this year and, and set the tone that, Hey, wait, get him out of there, clear him out. If they come up and in or in on the inside corner again, it just seemed like he was late on Cleveland, maybe caught off guard and, and some of the pitches that were on the in, inner part of the plate that he fouled off. He's going to have to have to turn on one of those, especially the Crawford boxes. It's not very far. Just get it up in the air. Hit a fly ball to left field down in Houston, and you will get rewarded. Coney, this is great. but it, So would it be better for Judge to be more aggressive than you might think because 
if you get that that fastball and then you can turn on, should he try and pull the trigger early in the at bat before you get into a deeper count where they can maybe get that off speed and breaking stuff down and away? I agree. Yes, I think that's another feature we saw from Aaron Judge at times this year was swing at the first pitch. Absolutely. If I'm pitching against Aaron Judge or any tough hitter, and I'm worried about him being very aggressive on the first pitch, that changes my whole approach. If I under, if I think he's going to spot me a strike or he's kind of eyeballing pitches, then I can steal a strike early in the in the count. I can get more of the plate. One guy I can point to as an example was Mike Piazza. He took a lot of first pitches. And when I faced him in the 2000 World Series, I threw ball one. The second pitch was a fastball right down the middle of the plate because I had full confidence that he was taking a strike. He was going to give me that pitch. My whole approach changes to your point, James, that if Aaron Judge is going to pull the trigger on a pitch in the uh, in the first pitch or early in the at-bat, I can't get as much of the plate. I got to aim for the corners or I got to spin it or I got to change my whole approach. Uh, if I think I'm facing aggressive Aaron Judge or passive Aaron Judge, big, big difference there. He's shown the ability to do both. He's shown the ability to kind of be very patient, but also be very aggressive on the first pitch. So, yeah, if I'm Aaron Judge, I'm looking first pitch for an opportunity to pull a fly ball, especially down in Houston. One more item really quick before we get to this week in pitching history and close out the show. And this may be a moot point by the time our episode comes out, the rosters could be released again. Everything happening very quickly with the ALDS ALCS transition is Oswald Peraza on this roster for the Yankees. Wow. You know, I probably would say yes, but I guess it depends on whether you're going, you know, what kind of lineup you're going to feature down there. There's some, a real opportunity and a real crossroads in terms of decision-making. Do you put Stanton in the outfield? Do you put Stanton in left field? Do you get Carpenter in the lineup? That kind of changes things. And then, okay, so you're going to, if you're doing that, then Oswaldo is going to start it short. I would assume, especially against some tough right-handed pitching down there in Verlander, you try to get another left-handed bat in there. I, I guess that's a real question. Who's your, who's your shortstop? Can Stanton play left field in Houston? You know, it's, it's up in the air. And so, yes, if, if that's the case, then, you know, maybe DJ LeMay is your guy off the bench as a pinch hitter, as opposed to Peraza. Cause then now, now you've got kind of Falefa as your backup shortstop. So yeah, that's the question. I mean, if you're going to play Oswaldo in left field and kind of Falefa at shortstop and you want to pinch hit for them, him, then maybe you do want to have Peraza on the roster. Uh, maybe you could use Peraza as your, as your pinch runner to run the bases late in the game. But, you know, that's currently LaCastro. Obviously, if you need a stolen base, he's the guy, and he has elite speed. So, yeah, I mean, decisions, decisions. The question is, to me, it all centers around Stanton and Carpenter. Can you get Carpenter in the DH spot, or can you throw can you throw Carpenter in left field, for that matter, in Houston? So that, that's the question. Carpenter or Stanton playing the outfield, really, it really impacts who, who you want on your roster. My guess going into the series is that Peraza is not on the roster. I think uh, the Aaron Hicks injury swap in for a 13th pitcher. I don't know what other, I don't know if there's a guy that the Yankees would drop off of the DS roster position player wise to get Peraza on. I could see them doing that for DJ LeMayhew. Um, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't think they'll go with Peraza and put him in that spot in an ALCS, but We'll see. This will this will drop uh, shortly after the uh, the rosters are released. So we'll we'll see soon. 
James, I'm with you. I think kind of goes back to a little bit of what we were talking about when how to approach Jordan Alvarez. I think the Yankees could opt to take the extra pitcher to fill Hicks's spot. You're able to get Ron Marinaccio back on and not sacrifice a lefty like Lucas Litke. He stays on the roster there. So, uh, yeah, a lot of questions that are going to be answered. They were probably answered on the plane ride to Houston for the Yankees, and we should be knowing that in short order if we already don't by the time this episode is released. More Toe in the Slab is coming up. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. More athletes are speaking out about the importance of mental health, but you do not have to be a pro to want to be at the top of your game. Everybody needs to take care of their mental well-being, whether you're an athlete or not. And therapy is the best way to stay in peak mental shape. If you're thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. That's BetterHelp. It's convenient, accessible, affordable. It's entirely online. You don't have to leave home. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey. And if you want, you can switch therapists at any time. So when you're ready to feel at the top of your mental health game, you can get there by visiting betterhelp.com slash slab today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash slab. All right. This week in pitching history, James, what do you have for us? October 21st, 1998. That's 24 years ago, Friday. The Yankees finish a World Series sweep of the Padres in San Diego. Andy Pettit outduels Kevin Brown 3-0 with seven and a third shutout innings. Mariano Rivera closes the door. The Yankees went 114-48 and in the regular season, 11-2 and in the postseason. And this stuck out to me because so much of the discourse this week some of it somewhat exhausting about the playoff format and regular season versus postseason success and all this at the end of the day the best of the best conquer the marathon and the sprint and nobody did that better than the 1998 yankees james not mincing any words i love it it's true told Dave Roberts the same thing. You know, you, the, the Dodgers missed an opportunity to have that signature moment in their franchise history. The, the further removed I get from 1998, the more I appreciate it. And then, you know, I, I tried to convey that to Dave Roberts. He, he understood it. And that's why I think it's probably pretty disappointing now that they had a golden opportunity to be in that category that James might just uh, perfectly described. And you know, now it's just another Dodger team who won 111 games and people are going to go, oh, okay, yeah, they won 111. Yeah, nice year, but, but, but a big but behind that. Let's close out the show here with three up, three down, guys. Uh, I'll go first really quick. Going to give it to you, Darvish. He opposed Zach Wheeler in game one on Tuesday with the Phillies and the Padres. Darvish gave up the two solo home runs. The, the, obviously, the monster shot to... Uh, Kyle Schwarber, but overall gave San Diego everything that it needed. Went seven innings, had good slider fastball mix as usual, seven strikeouts. So despite the loss in game one, Padres pitching, specifically you Darvish for me, looking really sharp here. Yeah, I, I, I guess to, to, for me, it's the overall theme, you know, of it's so hard to hit in the big leagues. I mean, just watch these games. The relievers are just incredible one after another with Filthy stuff. I mean, incredible high velocity. Every razor sharp tunneled breaking ball seems to be, you know, so deceptive and thrown with, with exceptional spin and, and location. Uh, the, the overall uh, work of the, of the entire bullpens across the board are just really 
as good as we've ever seen it, I think, in the game of baseball. Uh, to me, back in the day, as they say, you know, back in the 80s, you mentioned the Royals in the 70s and 80s, there was a big drop-off from the starting pitching to middle relief, and then maybe you had a closer at the end that, that had top-notch stuff. Or, or for, for the Royals, it was Dan Quisenberry, who had sort of a trick pitch, that sinker submarine style. Nowadays, no, it's five or six relievers that all feature just incredible high quality stuff. But with that being said, it's a little bit of a return to the starting pitching when the starting pitching getting through three times in the order pitching seven innings, as we saw Wheeler do for the Phillies last night, as we saw Garrett Cole do when the Yankees really needed him to get through seven innings and a third time through the lineup. It's got a little bit of the return of the dominant starting pitching too, along with you know, incredible bullpen work across the board, which we know, which makes it so hard to hit. It's why we're seeing so, so many high strikeouts. I hear so many former major league players bemoan the fact of, look at all these strikeouts and they're bemoaning the style of play in today's game. They're underestimating the quality of the pitching. I talked to John Carlos Stanton about it recently. I talked to Josh Donaldson about it. These are two guys that have been around the block already. They're veteran players. They say in just in the last five years or in their time in the big leagues, the velocity, the stuff is incredibly much better than they faced when they first broke into the big leagues. So I'm not talking about the velocity in 1980 compared to the velocity. Now I'm talking about the last five years, the incredible advancement of pitching in terms of the technology and tunneling and pitch design and velocity training, everything across the board is just incredible. Nowadays, it's so hard to hit. That's why home runs play a big part. In, in today's game and whether you like it or not uh, you know, you really have to give credit to the pitchers because it's really been, it's better than it ever has been in the history of the game. In my mind, there's no question about it, but with all that being said, the starting pitching, the, the renaissance of, of dominant starting pitching has been the story for me. I'll finish it up. And we're, we're kind of on the same, the same wavelength. Cause I wanted to just touch on power and power, power, pitching, power, hitting. We've talked about before how this season was almost a record low for batting average, batting average plummeting around the league. This was the fifth lowest batting average in any season in MLB history in 2022. It was 243. This year so far in the postseason, the MLB batting average is 209. There's a huge drop off into this season. And then in October, it dropped another 30 plus points insane postseason home run balls this year in the regular season about 40 percent of the runs were scored on home runs so far this postseason 45 power plays we saw it last night with wheeler on the mound harper and schwarber at the plate that's the formula and we'll see uh, we'll see who comes out of it with only four teams left standing Power and power, power offense versus power pitching. It's a collision course. It's what we're seeing uh, in the NLCS after one game, like James just mentioned. It's what we all think is going to happen in the ALCS as well with the Yankees and the Astros. Uh, that's going to do it for this episode, guys. Uh, we're going to come back with another episode on Friday between games two and three. The ALCS will have two games already in the books there with the NLCS as well. So it's a good point to drop another episode. So we'll be back with you on Friday. Uh, rate, review, subscribe. Best way you can show support for the show. For David Cohn, for James Smythe, our terrific producer, Dan Work, who is working his tail off here this October all around the John Boy Media platforms. Uh, this is Justin Shackle. We'll talk to you on Friday on Tone the Slab. 
Pitching with David Kona Production at John Boy Media.